Podcastle 265, Giant Episode, for June 25th, 2013, The House of Ants, by Zen Cho, rated R, contains vampires and their families, extended families. Welcome to Podcastle, I'm Ann Leckie. This week's story is kind of a long one, so I'll keep this short. Zen Cho, who happens to be the author of this week's story, is one of this year's nominees for the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, not a Hugo Award. There's a really good reason for this. If you're a regular Podcastle listener, you've run across her work before, and there's more available. You can find her work, or links to her work, at her website, zencho.org. The story you're about to hear is The House of Ants, and it originally appeared in Giganotosaurus, which, yes, I edit. I don't edit Podcastle, and I don't have any say in what Anna and Dave choose. But if you could see me now, you would observe my complete lack of surprise that they loved this story just as much as I did. The House of Ants is read by Nina Shaharudin. Nina is finishing her master's in Glasgow, and on the side, she's part of the Bright Club, a group of postgraduates and postdocs who combine their academic passion with stand-up comedy. They'll be performing throughout August as part of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And if I remember to tell Anna and Dave, there'll be a link on the Podcastle website where you can find out where they'll be and how to get tickets. Nina will be on the 23rd show. The House of Ants by Zen Cho Dedication to the women of my family. The house stood back from the road in an orchard. In the orchard, one of the lizards, the length of a man's arm, stalked the branches of rambutan trees like tigers on the hunt. Behind the house was an abandoned rubber tree plantation, so proliferant with monkeys and leeches and spirits that it might as well have been a forest. Inside the house lived the dead. The first time she saw the boy across the classroom, Ali knew she was in love because she tasted durian on her tongue. That was what happened, no poetry about it. She looked at a human boy one day and the creamy, rank richness of durian filled her mouth. For a moment, the ghost of its stench staggered on the edge of her teeth and then it vanished. She had not tasted fruit since before the baby came, since before she was dead. After school, she went home and asked the aunts about it. Ama, she said. Can you taste anything besides people? It was evening. Ali had had to stay late at school for marching drills, and the aunts were already cooking dinner. The scent of fried liver came from the wok wielded by Auntie Girl. It smelled exquisite, but where before the smell of fried garlic would have filled her mouth with saliva, now it was the liver that made Ali's post-death nose sit up and take interest. It would have smelled even better raw. Ha! said Amma, who was busy chopping ginger. I mean, said Ali, when you eat the ginger, can you taste it? Because I can't. I can only taste people. Everything else got no taste, like drinking water only. Disapproval rose from the aunts and floated just above their heads like a mist. The aunts avoided discussing their undeceased state. It was felt to be an indelicate subject. It was like talking about your bowel movements or other people's adultery. Why do you ask this kind of question? said Ama. Better focus on your homework, said Joachim. I finished it already, said Ali. But why do you put in all the spices when you cook then? If it doesn't make any difference. It makes a difference, said Auntie Girl. Why do you even cook the people? said Ali. They're nicest when you're raw. 
are girl, said Ama. You don't talk like that, please. We are not animals. Even if we are not alive, we are still human. As long as we are human, we will eat like civilized people, not dogs in the forest. If you want to know why, that is why. There was a silence. The liver sizzled on the pan. Ama diced more ginger than anyone would need, even if they could taste it. Is that why Sa Ipo chops intestines and fries them in batter to make them look like Yuchakwe? asked Ali. I ate fried breadsticks for breakfast every morning in my life, said Saipo. Just because I am like this doesn't mean I have to stop. Enough, enough, said Archor. As the oldest of the aunts, she had the most authority. No need to talk about this kind of thing. Ali, come take the roots off this tauge and don't talk so much. The aunts had a horror of talking about death. In life, this had been an ununderstandable superstition, but it seemed peculiar to dislike the mention of death when you were dead. Ali kept running into the wall of the aunt's disapproval head first. They were a family who believed that there was a right way to do things and consequently a right way to think. Ali always seemed to be thinking wrong. She could see that as a caretaker, the aunt had a right to determine where she went and what she did, but she objected to their attempts to change what she thought. After all, none of them had died before the age of 55 while she was stuck at 16. It's okay if I don't follow you 100%, she told them one day in exasperation. It's called a generation gap. This came after Sa Ipo had spent half an hour marvelling over her capacity for disagreement. In Sa Ipo's day, girls did not answer back. They listened to their elders, did their homework, came topping class, bought the groceries, washed the floor, and had enough time left over to learn to play the gujeng and volunteer for charity. When Sa Ipo had been a girl, she had positively delighted in submission. But children these days... Once an aunt got hold of an observation, she did not let go of it until she had crunched its bones and sucked the marrow out and saved the bones to make soup with later. Gap? What gap? Sa Ipo said. It's a branded clothing, said Auntie Girl. She was a cool aunt. American shop. They sell jeans. Very expensive. The aunt surveyed Ali with gentle disappointment. Why do you care so much about brands? said Ama. If you want clothes, Ama can make clothes for you. Better than a clothes in the shop also. So Ali did not tell them about the boy. If the aunts could not handle her having thoughts, imagine how much worse they would be about her having feelings. Especially love. Love. Stealing into her life like a thief in the night, filling her dried-out heart and plumping it out. Being a vampire was not so bad. It was like eating steak every day, but when steak was your favourite food in the world. It wasn't anything like the books and movies, though. In books and movies, it seemed quite romantic to be a vampire, but Ali and her aunts were clearly the wrong sort of people for the ruffled shirt and velvet jacket style of vampirism. And death had not lent Ali any mystical glamour. It had not imbued her with magical powers, gained her exotic new friends, or even done anything for her acne. In fact, Ali's life had become more boring post-death than it had been pre, because at least when she was alive, she had had friends. Now she just had aunts. She still went to school, but she was advised against fraternizing with her schoolfellows for obvious reasons. Anyway, what is friends? said the aunts. Won't last one. Only family will be there for you at the end of the day. The sayings of aunts filled her head until they poked out of her ears and nostrils. Yet here came this boy one fine day, and suddenly her ears and nostrils were cleared. Her head was blown open. 
The sayings of the aunts fluttered away in the wind and dissolved with nothing to hold on to. Love was like swallowing a chili paddy hole. A classmate caught her staring at the boy the next day. Eh, see something very nice, is it? said the classmate, her voice heavy with innuendo. She might as well have added. <laughs> Fortunately, Ali did not have quick social reflexes. Her face remained expressionless, she said contemplatively. I can't remember whether today's my turn to clean the window or not. Sorry, you say what, ah? You think that guy looks very nice, is it? The classmate retreated, embarrassed. No, lah, just joking only, she said. Who is that guy? said Ali, maintaining the facade of detachment. Is he in our class? I never see him before. Blur, lah, you, said the classmate. That one is Rizwal. He's new. He just moved here from KL. He came to Rubo Udang from KL? said Ali. I know, right? said the classmate. This seemed an eccentric move to them both. Everyone had uncles and aunts, cousins, older brothers and sisters who lived in KL. Only grandparents stayed in Rubo Udang. In three years, Ali knew none of the people sitting around her in the classroom would still be living there. Lubo Udang was a place you moved away from when you were still young enough to have something to move for. Fresh surprises awaited. The first time the boy opened his mouth in class, a strong western accent came out. It said, I don't know. In answer to the obvious question the at maths teacher had posed him, but it made even that confession of ignorance sound glamorous. People said Ritzwell had been at an international school in KL. The nearest international school to Lubo Udang was in Penang. A whole state and straight away. He sounds like TV Hall, said the classmate. Apparently he was born in US. Ridswell called natrium, sodium, and calium, potassium. For the duration of his first week at school, he wore dazzlingly white high-top leather sneakers instead of the whitewashed canvas shoes everyone else wore. The shoes didn't last long. They were really too cool to be regulation. But it didn't matter that Ritzwell had to give them up to the discipline teacher a week after he had started. The aroma of leather hung around him forever after, even when he was only wearing bata like the rest of the class. Ali had never been in love, but she took to it like a natural despite her lack of practice. She spun secret fantasies about him, the things they would say to each other, the adventures they would have. She would reel off dazzling one-liners. He would gaze at her with intrigued, long unseed eyes. She saw them sitting in a cafe, unlike any kopitiam to be found in Lubo Udang, with flowered wallpaper, tiny, glossy mahogany tables, and brisk, friendly waitresses who took your orders down in a little notebook and did not shout in the direction of the kitchen, Milo Osato! They would sit together at a table. Ritzwell's curly head bent close to her smooth one. They would speak of serious things, but she would also make him laugh. Through this love, she would be renewed, brilliant, special. However lurid her fantasies got, her imagination never stretched beyond conversation. You could not imagine kissing a boy when you were never more than a room's width away from an aunt. Ali's favourite time to dream was in that precious space of quiet between getting in bed and falling asleep. She could construct a pretty good Parisian cafe as she lay underneath a Donald Duck blanket. But cafes were one thing, kisses were another. No kiss could survive GE snores from the mattress across the room. That was no big deal. There was time enough to imagine the later stages of a romance. After all, she had not even got to the overtures. 
Ali came from a family that believed in being prepared. For staring at the back of Ritzwald's lovely head in class, she wove conversation openers from the casual to the calculatedly cool. She then made the fatal mistake of writing them down. The aunts would have pulled it off if they had left everything to GE. In life, GE had played the violin. She could have been a professional if her husband had not become envious and depressed, so that she had had to stop playing to keep him happy. She had not touched the violin since, but she still had the soul of an artist. It gave her sensibility. She sat down next to Ali one day and asked her what she was doing. Ali was trying to think of nonchalant ways to ask Ritzwell what life meant to him. Fire homework, she said. She snapped her exercise book shut. Good, good, said G.E. She looked dreamily into the distance. They were sitting on the step outside the kitchen door. Behind them came the hiss and clang of archor making human stomach soup with bucket loops of pepper and coriander. In front of them stood the orchard. It was one of those blindingly sunny days. The leaves of the trees shone with reflected sunlight so bright that if you looked at them, purple-green shapes remain imprinted in your eyes after you looked away. The heat was relieved by an occasional breeze that lifted the leaves and touched their faces like a caress. A monitor lizard paused on the branch of a tree to look at them. It blinked and ran up the branch out of sight. When you are young, you must focus, said Chi. You must pay attention at school, study hard and become clever. When you are young, that is when you have the best chance. And you are young now, in this modern day. Your women can do everything. Can be doctor, can be lawyer. You know none of us went to university? Your archer wasn't allowed, and when Ama and Saipo were young during the war, everything was too clunk about. I wasn't clever enough. Auntie Girl's family couldn't afford it, so she could only get a diploma. But you, Ali, you have all of the opportunities. You have lived so long, we have saved enough money. Maybe if you study hard, if you get a scholarship, you could even go to England like my uncle the doctor, your daughter Kong. Your English is so good. You have a good chance. Ali was used to such pep talks. The aunts never scolded. They did not believe in raising their voice. They only told. The benefits of only ever being told and not scolded were obvious, but the disadvantage of it was that while people only scolded when you had done something wrong, aunts got to tell all the time. I know, G.E., said Ali. You all have told me before. In her daydream, Ritual had been on the point of tucking her hair behind her ear. She was impatient to return to it. You must not get distracted by anything, said Chi. There will be time for other things when you are older. There is so much time ahead of you. Right now, you must focus on your studies. Then we can tell all the neighbours about our clever girl. She put her soft hand on Ali's arm and stroked it. Love came up the arm and melted Ali's thorny, teenaged heart. When G.E. said, You listen to G.E., ah? Ali said pliantly, Yes, G.E. So she never heard the rest of the talk. Plan if Ali had proved intransigent, which went into alarming detail about the inadvisibility of youthful romance. The way G.E. had two-stepped around the subject matter, Ali would never have known she was talking about, not for everyone else. All the other aunts believed in the forthright approach, and not one of them could keep a secret. When Ali came home from school the day after G.E. had given her little talk, Archor looked up from the dining table and said, Ah, girl, who is this Malay boy? Why is he called already? She turned to Ama. Lee, 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 what or what? Ama did not know any dirty words and could not have told you what sodomy was if you'd asked her. She said in concern, Lee, Ritzwan, ma, he is called Ritzwan. 
Isn't that right, Ali? Cannot marry a Malay, Achua told Ali. They don't know how to treat their women. Ali was surfing the waves of outrage. She started to say, You all read my diary? Then she clamped her mouth shut in fury. Of course they had. She could just picture G.E. and Auntie Girl reading it out, translating the English and Malay to Hokkien as they went along for the benefit of Acho and Ama and Saipo who could not read. The aunt's conception of the right to privacy went far enough to allow you to close the toilet door when you were peeing, but no further. Ama saw you when you were being born, Ama said. No further explanation was required. Even if you think you will be so happy and the man is so good, you don't know what can happen, said Acho. Do you know or not? They can marry four wives? Nay, man. Sigu had four wives? He wasn't even Muslim, said Auntie Girl. Acho said repressively. Your uncle was a very naughty boy. It wasn't four wives. Not four wives, said Ama. Only one wife. The others were girlfriends only. The Laksa lady cannot even count as girlfriend, sniffed Saipo. Remember how she threw a bowl of Laksa in his face when he told her he wasn't going to marry her? Even a laksa lady can put on airs like that. She asked him to pay for it some more, said Ama. She realized they were enjoying reminiscing about her naughty brother's adventures rather too much and changed her face to look serious. Ali, this is what men are like. Not all men, said G.E. Yes, all men, said Saipo. Only bad men, said Ama. But when you are young, you cannot tell whether a man is a good man or a bad man yet. You are too small. Now you must focus on your studies. Don't think about this Ritzwan. His name, said Ali, is Ritzwan. She stormed out of the kitchen. From that day, there was no respite for her. The aunts abounded in stories of bad men and the bad things they had done to good women. Look at your great-grandfather, said Auntie Girl. Shouldn't speak ill of the dead, said Ama piously. He was your grandfather, our girl. You should show respect. No need to respect that man, said Acho, who had been that man's wife. This is what happens when you marry too young, she told Ali. That man didn't even deserve to be called husband. I was only 19 when I had my third child, Yosa Ipo, and already he had a second wife. She lived in Ipo, Sa Ipo confirmed. When I found out, I told him, If you don't stop seeing her, I will take my children and go, said Acho. He promised he wouldn't see her again. But all along after that, little did I know he was going back and forth between me and that other woman. My fourth child is the same age as the second child. He didn't know how to feel shame. Never mind my heart. At least if she didn't have children, nobody would know. But he didn't even care enough to save my face. Ama was uncomfortable. Man, so long ago... It's not good to speak bad of other people. Ali must know, so she won't make the same mistake, said Acho. He didn't even support the second wife properly, so she came to me asking for money. When I saw her with the baby, I packed up and brought all my children here. Don't think this was your grandfather's house. He was rich before he lost it all in gambling, but this was my parents' home. His creditors couldn't touch this. All this was my land. If that man came on it without my permission, I could call the police on him. Ali was interested despite herself. Did you ever see him again? Of course, said Acho. Where do you think your four other great uncles and great aunts came from? Ma says too much. Shouldn't talk about such things, said Ama to Saipo. But Saipo only laughed. We all know the story already, she said. Let Ali listen. Maybe she will learn something also. 
But you said if he came on your land, you would call the police, Ali said to Archer. Ah, he was my husband after all, said Archer. I didn't let him live here, only visit. I told him, you can come and stay for good only after you get rid of that woman. But he didn't, so even after he asked and asked, I never went back to him. It wasn't easy, you know, not raising eight children with no husband. Lucky my mother was there to help me. That's why you cannot think about this kind of thing at your age. Men, romance. It's too early. But Ama married Akong when she was 16. Ali objected. I'm 17 already. That's not the same, said Sa Ipo. Ama stared at her hands on the table. You forget, girl, said Chi gently. There was a war then. Chi's husband wouldn't let her play the violin, an iniquity long known to Ali. Curiously, if anything was going to stop Ali's wayward heart from loving Ritzwal, it was Ji's patience when she talked about Ji Tiao. He was a good husband. Men have their little ways. They have their likes and dislikes. As long as they are responsible, as long as they look after you and the children, there's no harm in letting them have their way. Ali was less impressed by the wickedness of Saipo's husband. Saipo was the only one who spoke about her husband with the complacency of someone who had asked more of love and always received it. But she still complained about her husband's vegetarianism. Satya Kong being a vegetarian doesn't sound so bad, Ali objected. How was that suffering for you? You think what? I had to be vegetarian also, Saipo retorted. You think he cooked for himself? I cooked for the two of us. Vegetarian a few times a year or for a few months, I don't mind. Vegetarian all the time. For the rest of my life, I never tasted garlic or onion. Ama kept the story about her marriage for the right time. One night, Ali's evening hunt had taken longer than usual, so she got home late and only managed to finish her at Matt's homework after 11. She was feeling creaky, jointed and lonely as she got ready for bed in a house full of night sounds. The beam of light under Ama's door came as a pleasant surprise. She poked her head into Ama's room. Not sleeping yet, Ama? Ama was lying propped up on the pillows, her eyes half closed, but when Ali spoke, she sat bolt upright. No, cannot sleep, she said in a blatant lie. Brush your teeth already? Come, sit down next to Ama. Ali climbed into bed, the soft melody of Ama's fussing. Come under the blanket, you'll get cold. Let Ama feel your hands. Ah, see la, so cold. Next time you mustn't go out until so late. Not good to work so late at night. Why don't you want to eat dinner with us? I like to have fresh meat sometimes, said Ali. Then don't be so picky. Ama always tells you, eat the first man you see. I did, Ama, Ali protested. Now that she was under the blanket with Ama's bony arm around her and Ama's warm chest against her cheek, she felt drowsy, protected. The guy had a motorbike. Didn't know how to get rid of it. So how? Did you manage to get rid of it in the end? Yes. Flew out of town and dumped it in the middle of an oil palm plantation. No bloodstains. And I took off the license plate. Ama tusked. So difficult, she said. Next time, just eat with us. We all have hunted for you already. And we are older than you, so we know which people are the nicest to eat. Okay, okay, mumbled Ali. They sat in silence for a while. Ali half shut her eyes to get the light from the lamp on the bedside table. Through the slits of her eyes, she could see Ama's reading glasses and the container in which she kept her false teeth. The teeth floated in cloudy water, yellowed by coffee and blood. The cicada screeched. The ceiling fan hummed to itself. The air was cool enough that the breeze it created was a pleasure rather than the necessity it usually was. 
Annie forgot the persistent sense of irritation she had had since the aunt had found her diary, which had felt as if she had sat in her underwear. She was almost asleep when Ama spoke. Do you know why I married your uncle? she said. Embarrassment woke Ali up. Don't know, said Ali. An expectant pause ensued. Ama was waiting for a better attempt at an answer. Uh, you loved him? Where God? said Ama. I was 16, little girl only. How do you know what is love yet? Ama washed your backside when you were a baby. Now that is love. That's different, said Ali. You wouldn't marry someone just because they didn't mind washing your backside. Don't answer back to your eldest, said Ama. No. I married him because of the war. The Japanese soldiers used to come to everyone's houses looking for young girls. So Archo cut our hair and put us in our brother's clothes. It worked with Saiko because she was younger and skinny, but you know when Ama was young, Ama was so chubby-chubby. Even wearing boys' clothes, I still looked like a girl. When the soldiers came, Archo would tell us to run to the forest behind the house and hide there until the soldiers went away. So horrible! Must lie in the mud. Cannot move even with the mosquitoes biting your body. When I came back to the house, my face looked like it had pimples all over it because of the mosquito bites and my legs were covered with leeches. I had to sit down in the kitchen and Archer would put salt on them, but you cannot take them off with your hand, you know. Must wait until they drop off. Then when they came off, my legs would bleed everywhere. So horrible. That's why you never let me play in the forest, said Ali, because you don't like leeches. Ama nodded. One day... Some soldiers came without warning to our house. I was in the kitchen cutting ubi kayu. Those days we had nothing much to eat, only tapioca that we cooked ourselves. There was no time to run out to the forest, so I just tried to make myself look small, bent my head over the chopping board. Your archer was so scared, she offered them all the food. Do you want Nescafe? Do you want biscuit? This la, that la. And she talked. Usually when the soldiers came, we didn't talk so much. Scared they think we asked questions because we were spies or what. But Archo didn't want them to look at me, so she kept talking. Did they like Malaya? How was Japan like? Not so hot. The Japanese was not so good, but she used every word she knew. When she ran out of words she knew, she repeated everything she already said. But the soldiers kept looking over at me. I was so scared, I cut my finger instead of the ubi, and the blood went all over the tapioca, and I didn't even make a sound. The soldiers drank coffee, they talked to Archo very friendly. Then they finally got up to go. Suddenly, their captain turned around and pointed at me. He said, can we have the tapioca? All along, they were looking at the ubi kayu on the shelf above my head. We gave them all the ubi we harvested from our own plants, even though we went hungry for the next few days. The great-grandfather said Archo should have given me away instead. That wasn't very nice of him, said Ali. And cannot stand having empty stomach, said Ama. After that, your great-grandparents were very anxious to see me married. When your Archon came to lodge with us, he was already quite old, 38 years old. And we only knew him a few weeks before he asked to marry me. But he was a teacher and an educated man, and the Japanese respected him. So my mother and father said yes. But hush. Ali said into it, He wasn't so bad, was he? She remembered her grandfather as a benign figure, distant but kindly enough when he was reminded of your existence. Your Akong was a good father, said Ama. All his students at his school looked up to him. Even the Japanese could see that he had a good character. And he knew how to be polite. He never said a bad word to me. But when a girl marries so young, to someone so much older, and he was educated, and I couldn't even read. I could hold a pen, but I could only draw pictures with it. Ah, girl, you must never tell anybody this. But your Akong did not respect me. Without love, you can live a happy life. Love is something that will come after you live together with your husband, after you have children together. But a woman should not marry where there is no respect. 
respect is the most important thing. So you must study hard and go to university. Now, at your age, it's not the time to look at boys, understand or not? Yes, said Ali. But the mutinous thought rumbled to the surface of her mind. They're the ones who don't understand. When she was a child, Ali had often wondered whether adults could read her mind. They seemed to have an uncanny ability to tell what she was thinking at any given moment. Ama evinced this telepathy now. Ah, you're angry already, she said. Don't think so much. Listen to Ama and do what you're told. Now, give me a kiss and go to bed. In the end, it was not even Ali's doing. Suddenly, easily, without any need for imaginary cafes or prepared lines scribbled in exercise books, Ali became friends with Ritzwal. It was because of Thursdays. G.E. and Auntie Girl were the only two of the aunts who could drive, so it was their job to pick Ali up from school. But they had line dancing every Thursday, and so they were an hour late. Ali usually waited for them in the canteen, doing homework if she felt like it and daydreaming if she didn't. In the middle of the day, there weren't many people around, and it was pleasant, even quiet. It smelled of grease, heated metal from the car park, and the freshly washed flesh of the afternoon session kids waiting for school to start. The background hum of talk and the hiss of oil in frying pans made Ali feel secure. She liked the feeling of being idle while others were busy, alone when others were talking. It was at this peaceful moment when Ali was following a drop of condensation on her glass of ice-soybean milk with a finger and thinking about nothing much that Ritzwell tapped her on the shoulder. He said, Tamadun Awal, right? And that was how she met him, the boy who gave her back her sense of taste. He dropped his school bag on the floor and sat on the bench next to her with an admirable lack of self-consciousness. Your name is Eng Ali? Don't worry, I'm not a stalker. I know, because I was checking out all our team members in class. I'm using this project as an exercise to get to know people. My name's Ritzwal, I'm new. So, what do you think of early civilizations? I don't know shit about them. Despite her many fantasies, Ali had not seriously considered ever actually talking to Ritzwal. She waited for her throat to close and her muscles to freeze. But she found herself speaking naturally, as if to a friend whom she had known forever. It's okay, I like this kind of thing, she said. Anyway, at least it's not for Satan Penulis or whatever. Ha! Don't even say that, said Rizwa. Now that's true. At least with Tamadun Awal, maybe we can dress up like ancient Egyptians or something. I think I'd look good in eyeliner. Now they can rotan by the discipline teacher then, you know, said Ali. You know Kwan Amina doesn't even let us wear coloured watches? Must be black. Plain black strap. She showed him the watch she was wearing. Metal watch also cannot. To Gaia Konon. Wallow, said Rizwa. He said it in a toneless accent Ali found peculiarly charming. I think that woman is just jealous. Like when she confiscated my shoes, she couldn't stand looking at them. Just got too jealous of my style. It would have been obnoxious if he had been serious. But Rizwal wore a perpetual embarrassed smile and uncertainty around the eyes that made it obvious that the hot air was just choking. Ali liked vulnerability in a human, and she warmed to this. She took your shoes, she said. They both looked down at his feet, now encased in boring white canvas. Never give back me? I never saw them again, said Ritzwal. I think she's wearing them now. Sometimes if you look closely, you can see the white flash under the hem of her baju. Discipline teachers cannot stand me, he said mournfully. I remind them of what they can never achieve. At my last school, there was one teacher like that, in Chip Valu. 
he used to chase me around the school with a rotan. He says because I ponting or I made rude signs at the teacher or I kinching the beaker or some garbage like that. But he couldn't fool me. I knew it was because he wished he was like me when he was young one million years ago. You peed in the beaker? said Ali. Only once, said Ritzwell modestly. What's for science? I wanted to detract it, but the Kimia teacher stopped me before I can do it. International school got discipline teacher meh, said Ali. What makes you think I went to international school, said Ritzwell. Ali went pink. Your slang, she said. You talk like Matale. Oh, that, said Ritzwell. It was his turn to look embarrassed. That's called the Bangsar accent. But don't hold it against me. I'm trying to be a Lubo Udangite, a good prawn. I've lived in Lubo Udang my whole life, said Ali. Right? What should I do to become a good Lubo Udangite? Don't call us prawns, said Ali. Ali had not had a friend to spend break with since she'd started at that school. She did not eat during break. It had seemed simpler to avoid the crowd at the canteen and find some out-of-the-way spot on the school grounds where she could read. Of course, it had been different before she was dead, but that was before, in another life. And more importantly, at a different school. Now that she and Ritzwell were friends, Ali bought a bag of Kuropotleko in the canteen every day and ate them while Ritzwell wolfed down a bowl of Tom Yam noodles. She had loved the chewy fried fish sticks in life. Now she was dead, they tasted of nothing. She ate slowly and threw the remaining kuropo away when break was over. She felt bad about the waste of it. Heart pain, the aunts would have said. Ali's upbringing had trained her to a mindful parsimoniousness so that it did almost feel like a physical pain to see the fish sticks tumbling into the bin. She asked Joachim if she would disguise some innets for her to take to school. Joachim considered her a moment in silence. Then she said, I'll deep fry them. They'll look like chicken nugget. She turned back to her washing. Uh, Joachim? said Ali. Um, don't tell the others okay or not? Acho and Ama and all of that. <laughs> Ama will scold me for eating fried things. She'll say I'll get pimples. When Ali saw Tuakim's face, she felt foolish for the lie. This is because of your friend, Tuakim said, in the tone of one pointing out an obvious fact to a dim person. Ali looked down at her feet, her smallest toes curled in embarrassment. I'm shy to be the one not eating, she mumbled. People like to eat together. You need your own friends, said Tuakim. When Ali peeked up, she saw that Tuakim's face had not softened. She spoke almost sternly. It was not kindness in her face, but understanding. You need your own thing, said Tuakim. Something that's nothing to do with your family. You feel this especially when you're young, but even for old people, it's important. Some people don't understand this kind of thing, so it's better not to talk so much about it. She wiped her hand on a dishcloth and started putting the clean dishes back in the cupboard. I'll put your snack in the backpack in the morning. Other people don't need to see. Thank you, Tuakim, said Ali. She had never thanked an aunt for anything before. It was understood that they would do things for her, that that was the way the world worked. She did not need to thank them any more than trees thank the sun for shining or the earth thank the clouds for rain. Ali was not sure the aunts would have understood or even registered any attempt on her part to express gratitude for the many ways in which they cared for her. It made her feel funny to say the words, stripped somehow, skinless and shy. To say it was to contemplate a world in which the aunts did not look after her. Tuakim only inclined her head slightly to show she had heard, 
She made no other response. That was one thing you could rely on Tuakim for. She had a sense of the appropriateness of things. The next day at school, Ali opened her plastic container and almost felt normal, eating fried kidney nuggets as if she were any ordinary kid at school. Ritzwal sneaked looks at the nuggets as he was eating his tom yum noodles. When he had finished his noodles, he said casually, What's that? Ali had expected this. Food was for sharing. If she had been human, she would have responded to his interest by offering him a nugget. The simple, unthinking generosity had been put beyond her power after her death. One reason why she had not bothered with friends until it's well. Fortunately, there was a simple way of avoiding awkwardness. Pork, she said. She ate another nugget. I've always wondered what pork tastes like, said Ritzwal to the air. I've always thought it's very important to respect other people's religion, said Ali to the nuggets. What is life if you don't taste everything that the world has to offer, said Ritzwal. In this country, we must accept other people's customs, said Ali. Not just tolerate, but respect. That is how to live together. Ritzwa laughed and gave up. If you don't want to share your nuggets, say la, he said. Why so shy to admit you're greedy? Who's greedy now? said Ali. One bowl of tom yum, how many ota ota, tachukoka. Your mother and father don't feed you. I'm a man. Men need nutrition, okay? said Ritzwa with dignity. Ali made cheering noises through a mouthful of nuggets. Of course, perfect happiness could not be allowed to continue without an aunt stepping in to intervene. If anyone had ever dared to suggest to her aunts that children should be allowed to make their own mistakes and learn from them, it would have horrified the aunts. Ali was doing her chemistry homework in the kitchen one afternoon when Auntie Girl said, Wow, study so funny, ne? Why are you smiling? Ali started. She had been thinking about her conversation with Ritzwal about nuggets, but she hadn't realised she was smiling. Nothing, she said. Must be that small boy, said G.E. No, said Ali a little too loudly. Everything is Ritzwell this, Ritzwell that. You think that's the only thing I think about, is it? Before this outburst, the aunts had been absorbed in their usual afternoon task of preparing dinner and had only been making chat for the sake of it. They squatted over their buckets of viscera, sorting the nice bits of the human innards, the intestines, the liver, the kidney, the heart, the lungs, from the less nice bits, the spleen, the gallbladder, the esophagus. Now the aunts were all interested. Auntie Girl even washed her bloody hands and came to sit at the table with Ali. Who's this Roswell? said Archer. She's talking about that Malay boy, ma, said Ama. What's his name again? Rizwan. Ah, oh, Rizwan, said Archer. Why, Ali still likes this Rizwan? I thought that was all finished already. Ali doesn't so easily forget, G.E. chided. That's right, said Auntie Girl. She doesn't stop liking things so fast. Remember when she was small, she liked the English show? What was it called? She switched to English for the title. My Little Horsey. She had all those horse toys with her long hair and the stars on the backside. She liked it for two years, from four until six. It's because she has a good memory, said G.E. Children usually don't remember things for so long, Ama agreed. Ali only never forgets anything. Men are not like my little hairby, said Archer reprovingly. There's no problem with liking little hairby for a long time. But Archer has already told you, so many problems come if you like a man. You should use your good memory to remember what it is in your textbooks, not for remembering your boyfriend, said Saipo. He is not my boyfriend, said Ali. We are just friends. Can't I have friends? 
Ah, Lee, friends are not a problem, said Ji. No, you cannot have friends, said Ama. Ma, Ji protested. You let me have friends when I was Ali's age. There's nothing wrong with boyfriends. Not sweethearts, not at this age, but boyfriends are okay. That's normal. Your time was different, said Ama. Ali is not like you. Ali is not normal. She looked up at Ali. Ali, you are not like any of us, she said. When we were young, we could have boyfriends. We couldn't, said Saipo. Not you and me. Never mind, sweethearts. Ma didn't even allow us just to be friends with boys. Yes, I never let you. Archer agreed. After a certain age, it doesn't look nice for a good girl to be around boys too much. Ama ignored them. When we were older, we could get married and everybody could come to our wedding, she said. There was nothing to hide. It's not the same for you. Ama wants you to get married someday. Ama wants you to graduate from university. Maybe you will never have children, but you can be a good scholar and have a good job. Other people will admire you. Your husband will respect you. But for this to happen, people cannot know. You must be very careful. You have to go to school so you can study, but you must make sure people don't remember you. No friends. Don't talk too much to teachers. You remember we all told you this before you started school again. Ali remembered. She stared at her exercise book. Priswa had written, What does any of it mean? at the bottom of the page. She had whited it out with liquid eraser, but the words showed through after the white fluid had dried. If you are friends with Ritzwell, that is even worse than if you like him, said Ama tenderly. You must not go around with him anymore. Don't do it suddenly, said Ji'i. Slowly, just become more distant. Don't draw him immediately, but don't need to talk to him so much. You will get the hint. Things will change in the future, said Auntie Girl. When you are older at university, it will be easier to hide. You can have friends there, but this place is too small. Everybody knows everybody's business. It's better to keep to yourself. There's no need to be so sad, girl, said Saipo. Even if you hurt his feelings, he won't remember you after a while. Young people recover very fast. I will remember, thought Ali. She did not want to cry because the aunts made such a fuss when he cried. She gulped and squeezed the pen and looked at Twakim. Twakim was sorting through the slippery organs listening to the conversation, but not part of it. She said, I still on the bucket. Every woman has secrets. Ha, very true, said Auntie Girl. When you get married, you won't be the only bride who knows something the groom doesn't know. Cousin Kaho didn't even know his wife was pregnant until she had the baby six months after the wedding. He never found out who the father was also, said Saipo. Shh, enough, said Archo, scandalized. Shouldn't talk for such things. Don't listen to your naughty aunties, Ama told Ali. How could you die and not be old enough to hear about premarital sex? How could you die and still not be allowed to fall in love or be honest? Surely not everything had to wait for university and a good job. Passion and truth had to trump even those things. Still, it wasn't a conscious decision on Ali's part to rebel. She was not even thinking about the many aunted lecture when the urge to candor came to her. It was a Thursday again, G.E. and Auntie Girl's line dancing day, and Ali and Ritzwal were hanging around waiting for their respective rides home. They had found the perfect width of concrete ledge to sit on next to the monsoon drain outside their school. From here, they had an unobstructed view of the road and a big leafy flame of the forest provided dappled shade. It was so sunny, the whole world gave off a metallic glare. Ali and Ritzwal sat on their ledge, squinting at the road. Ali surprised herself when she said, Riswell, do you have any secrets? Once it was out, she felt a great sense of relief. 
She knew she wanted to tell him. She was sick of keeping everything important to herself, hidden away from the piercing gaze of the arms. Yeah, said Ritzwell slowly. Yes. Funny you should say that. I've been thinking I should tell you one of them. Ali was nonplussed. Oh, but I was going to tell you, she said. Um, never mind. Oh, if you're going to say something, then you should say first, said Ritzwell. No, it's okay, you go first, said Ali. My secret isn't very interesting, said Ritzwell. You say first, huh? My one is very interesting, said Ali firmly. It'll take a long time to tell. You go first. Cannot, said Ritzwell. He got up off the ledge, fell into a squat, bent his head, and put his hands in his hair. Ali started to feel worried. She had never seen Ritzwell act like this before. Something seemed really wrong. Maybe something bad had happened at home. She got up and touched his shoulder. Eh? Why like this? What's wrong? My life, moaned Ritzwell. Ali felt relieved. If Ritzwell was in a good enough mood to whine, then he was manageable. Eh, Maraja already, she said. Do me to suck like that. How old are you? When Ritzwell lifted his head, she saw his eyes were wet. It's no big deal, he said. It's nothing to you. <laughs> There's nothing wrong. I just like you, that's all. That's my big secret. Probably you know already. Probably it's very obvious. You want, you laugh, la. But it's the first time I've ever been in love, so sorry if I want to make a big fuss about it. He shoved his head under his arm and sniffed. Ali did not know what face to make. Oh, she said foolishly. Oh, but... Ritzwell threw up his head. It's okay, he said. Don't say. I know the answer. I've embarrassed myself enough. Just out of the kindness of your heart, can you please don't say anything? But I... For five minutes, said Ritzwell. In five minutes, my dignity will return. Just leave me in peace to enjoy my misery for five minutes, okay? Ali began to frown. Don't need to be so drama, she said. You think this is Cantonese cereal or what? I have something to tell you too, remember? There was a pause in which Ritzwell did not move or even show that he had heard. Then he rubbed his eyes, he rearranged his limbs, sat down on the ledge, and looked at her. Sorry, he said. That wasn't so gallant of me. No, Ali agreed. Not gallant Lang Song. I'm not so good at this love declaration stuff, said Ritzwell. Yeah, true. You don't have to agree when I put out myself, said Ritzwell. He gave her the sweetest half-smile. His eyes were red and his lashes were still wet. What did you want to tell me? He said. I, said Ali. She found she could not do it. It was absurd. She had promised herself that she would tell him that she liked him and not just as a friend. She liked him like him. It had seemed so easy five minutes ago. It ought to be even easier now. She had only to say, I like you back. But what if Ritzwell didn't believe her? What if he thought she was just saying it to comfort him? What if, once she said it, he revealed that he had just been joking about liking her? Could she stand to give so much of herself away? The word stuck in her throat. She said, I... Through a process of thought even she did not understand, she swerved and went for what felt like the less difficult truth. She said, I'm a vampire. It was not the most intelligent thing she had ever done. 
What? said Rizwal. That's why you can't share my nuggets, said Ali wildly. They're not, not halal because they're made of pork. They're not halal because they're made of human. At first, Rizwal looked as if he might believe her. He looked at her for a long time, his mouth grim, his eyebrows knitted, his mouth twisted. Then his face cleared and he laughed. You're such a freak, said Rizwal. You're the weirdest person I know. Is that how you always try to change a subject in an awkward situation? Excuse me, sir, your fly is undone. But don't worry about it, I'm a werewolf. He rubbed his eyes. Sorry, uh, he said. I'll be normal again soon. Ali should have been relieved, or maybe touched, or any one of a number of benign emotions. Instead, she felt vexed. You told someone the biggest secret you had, and they didn't even take you seriously. You know, everything is not about you, she snapped. I don't say things just because of you, men. She changed to show him. It was always too easy to change when she was angry. What was she thinking, she asked herself later. She knew that love was supposed to make you act funny, but she did not know that it could actually deprive you of all common sense or kindness. It was not kind to show that to a human. What Ritzwell saw was a cold grey face, a face incontrovertibly dead. The features were Ali's own everyday features, but the skin did not have the comforting human glow, the flush in the cheek, the sweat on the upper lip. The texture of it was such that it did not even look like skin. Her face looked like it was made out of plastic. The long black hair hung around the face lankly. The eyes were white. When her mouth opened, a musty, inorganic smell gusted out. The tongue was bright red, the colour of fresh arterial blood, and it was too long. The teeth were perfectly ordinary. Maybe a part of her was hoping that he wouldn't be horrified, that he would still like her. Most of her was the sensible Ali she had always been, however, so it was with resignation that she watched Ritzwell step back, drop his school bag, whimper, and turn and run. She watched him run down the road, his limbs flailing and growing smaller. When he reached the junction at the end of the road, he stopped and doubled over. He would be bathed in sweat. The sun was unforgiving today and Ritzwell always skipped PE classes. He paused and Ali could almost see him wonder whether he should scrape up his dignity and come back to the forgiving shade or keep jogging and probably have a sunstroke. She felt her tragedy crust over with awkwardness. Why this kind of thing always happen to me? said Ali miserably. But then, thank all the gods that ever were, G.E.'s small brown proton turned into the road. In five minutes, Ali would be able to get into the car and pretend she didn't see Ritzwa walking back to their spot next to the monsoon drain, his hand shielding his eyes, his eyes not looking in her direction. Ali could not bear to ask Akim to stop making her fried human nuggets. The first day after her confession, she took them to the canteen as usual. But then it was an agony to be sitting alone. It took so long to chew each nugget when she wasn't using her mouth for talking. She caught glimpses of Ritzwell through the crowd, queuing up for his domyam and awkwardly not looking at anyone because he didn't have any friends except her. The nuggets tasted like paper. It was as if she was eating human food. After that, she avoided the canteen. Behind one of the school blocks, there was a narrow channel that ran between the building and the wall that surrounded the school grounds. It had become a repository for unwanted things. Buckets of dried paint were lined up along the wall, and broken old furniture came here to die. Ali fit right in. 
Here she could sit and read in peace, just as she had done before she'd ever become friends with Ritzwell. A week after her life was ruined, five long, dreary days during which she and Ritzwell carefully ignored each other at school, she had only got seven pages into her book. She was reading the eighth page at break, the words flying out of her mind the minute they entered through her eyes when Ritzwell said, Good book? Ali jumped and punched Ritzwell in the chin. Ow! said Ritzwell. What? Are you coming out of nowhere like that? Ali snapped to cover her relief. Sorry, uh, said Ritzwell in a mild complaining tone. He rubbed his jaw. What is this, WWF? Man, you have a strong right hook. Awkwardness rose like a wall between them. It's because I did Taekwondo when I was small, said Ali flatly. Not because I died. Ritzwell looked around for a chair, but failed to locate one. In a government school, chairs only got rejected from classroom duty for a real fault, such as having a hole in the middle of the seat or being in several pieces. He sat down on the ground instead. I didn't even know such things were real, he whispered. He did not look up at her. How did you become a... a vampire? said Ali. Is that what you call it? said Ritzwell. Is it not a bit different? Ali said, You want to say it? You want to tell me what am I? Ali never said her real name herself. Vampire was safe. Vampire was like Dracula, like goofy old black and white films, like pale angmals who swoon over long-haired girls. Vampire was funny or sexy, depending on which movie you watched. The right word was not funny. It was not sexy. Most of all, it was not safe. Ritzwell had a boyish disregard for subtextual cues. He did not seem to notice how wound up Ali was. He said, softly, as if he were speaking to himself, You know, I like you. I really like you. Ha! said Ali noncommittally. I've really never liked anyone as much as I like you, said Ritzwell. In my life, not even as a, a girl. I've never even had a friend I liked as much as you. When I'm with you, I feel like life is exciting. Like everything has an interesting secret behind it. Like nothing is normal or boring. That's how you make me feel. Not even by doing anything, just when I'm hanging out with you. Ali said in a stifled voice, That's how I feel when I'm with you too. Ritzwell reached down into his pocket. That's why you deserve this, he said. Ali had just enough time to register that he had a long, rusty nail in his hand when Ritzwell flung himself at her, aiming the nail at her throat. When you are dead, certain things stop mattering as much as they do to the living. Time, weight, pain, all lose some of their meaning. The protein-high diet and frequent exercise in chasing down prey are also excellent for the muscles. Ali caught Ritzwell's lunging body and threw him with no trouble, while he lay on the ground, stunned, she slipped the nail out from between his fingers. What's this? she shouted. What's this? You're trying to play the fool, is it? She felt as if the top of her head had come off. Ritzwell looked terrified. I was... I was... What? roared Ali. I just... Then Ritzwell said in one breath. I googled and it said if I put a nail in your neck, you would stop being a hunter and become a beautiful woman. And I thought maybe then we could be together, but it turned out I wasn't fast enough. I'm sorry. How dare you? Gasped Ali. I just wanted to save you, okay? Ritzwell rubbed his eyes. I'm sorry I couldn't make it in time. Who do you think you're talking to? Said Ali. There is no Ali, the vampire, and Ali, your friend. The girl who used to be your friend. 
I am just one person. If you make me not a vampire anymore, doesn't mean we can be be dating. If you make me not a vampire anymore, means there is no me anymore. You understand? She threw the nail on the ground. She wasn't quite angry enough to aim it at Ridswell, but it pleased her in a horrible way when he flinched. And one more thing, said Ali. I am already a beautiful woman, Domo. She stomped off without looking back. Ali felt strong and brave all day, big with a righteous anger like a balloon full of air. It took her through the rest of the school day and the ride home. When she took off her shoes at the front door, the air hit her nose, crowded with homey smells, coriander and hong yu and the stale scent of clean blankets. The balloon popped. Ali drew in a huge breath and expelled it as a sob. She sat down on the sofa in the living room and wept for half an hour. Girl, what's the matter? said Chi'i. What's happening? said Archor. How are? said Ama. Crying. Crying? said Archor. Ali is crying. You're crying, is it? said Saipo. The diagnosis bounced from aunt to aunt, each aunt repeating it to another for certainty. So already still crying, said Archor. Nobody has died. Your stomach is not empty. What is there to cry about? said Saipo. A girl, don't cry like a girl, said Ji. Teacher scolded you, is it? said Ama. Or is it because Ji and Andy girl were late when they picked you up from school? Ah, that's it, late, said Archor sternly. Always late. What's the use of all of this line dancing? Now you are late to pick Ali up and you have made her cry. She is so big already. I thought she can look after herself for an hour, said Auntie Girl, but she spoke with contrition, conscious that she was in the wrong. A girl, don't cry, said Chi'i. Chi'i won't be late anymore. We don't need to go dancing. Ah, so old already. We won't miss it. Ali loved that Chi'i and Auntie Girl danced. Her voice pushed through the terrible loneliness that locked her throat and said, It's not that. What is it? said Auntie Girl. I never believed in all this dancing thing, said Archor. In my time, girls didn't put themselves up there on the stage for people to look at it. It's not so nice. Ma, their dancing is not like cabaret, said Saibo. It is exercise, like Tai Chi or Arabic. Anyway, the girls are so big already. Why not let them do it? Ali says it's not that anyway, said Ama. What is it, girl? But Ali couldn't say. Kim was the only one who had stayed in the kitchen when Ali started crying. Now the sound of the tap running stopped and she came into the room, wiping her hands on a rag. A momentary lull had fallen as the aunts waited for Ali to reply, so everyone heard Kim when she spoke, even though her voice was as quiet as it always was. What did the boy do? said Kim. The silence flattened out and grew solid. In the hush... Tuakim sat down on the sofa next to Ali and put her arm around her. The aunts were not from a generation that hugged. Tuakim did it in a detached, almost clinical way. In the same way the aunts had picked Ali up and carried her when she was too exhausted to walk, those first few hours after she died. Tell Tuakim, said Tuakim. So she did.
Ali went to bed feeling pleasantly hollow and tired from crying so much. Her eyes were red and the skin around her nostrils was rough, but she felt clean and quiet inside. Aunt after aunt came into her room on some pretext to lay their soft wrinkled hands on her head and make sure her blanket was tucked around her properly. She slept like the virtuous dead, dreamless and innocent. The next morning, she felt newly minted, born again. She walked past Ritzwell's desk without a tremor and went home feeling almost happy, feeling like maybe she could get over him and it would be okay someday. It would start hurting again soon. The sense of invulnerability wouldn't last forever. The aunts would stop spoiling her and start chiding her for still being upset about it. But someday she'd stop being upset, stop missing Ritzwell at all. And when she was done with school, she would go to university far away from Lubu Udang and maybe there she'd meet someone nicer than Ritzwell. She needed quiet to study at mat, so instead of working in the kitchen as usual, she sat down in her room and buried herself in exercises until the light turned. She switched on her desk lamp and the action made her aware of a quietness in the house. She got up and walked through the silent dark house, wondering. There was no one in the kitchen. The living room was empty. It was 6.30 past the hour when Saipo's favourite Cantonese cereal would have begun, and yet the house was auntless. They must have gone out hunting, though it was late for that. Ali herself preferred to hunt at night under the cover of darkness, but the aunts did not even think you should laugh loudly before going to bed or it would give you nightmares. Hunting was considered far too stimulating an activity to engage in so close to bedtime. They preferred to hunt in the afternoon when the household chores were done and the humans were dozy. It was strange that they all had gone out at the same time. Even on the rare occasion that the aunts went out hunting in a body, one of them usually stayed at home, often Tuakim because Tuakim disliked the mess and exertion of hunting. Someone had to make sure Ali had fed herself and did her homework. Someone had to look after her. With that thought, Ali knew where the aunts had gone. She didn't bother going back to her room to turn off the lights or changing out of her pasamalam t-shirt and faded grey shorts or putting on shoes. She burst through the back door and leapt straight out in the evening sky. Most of the time, Ali was a girl. Her body and her mind were more used to it. Being in vampire mode made her uncomfortable. She avoided it as much as she could. But whenever she slipped into it, it was like putting on a pair of slippers after a long day of standing in high heels like stepping out of a ferociously air-conditioned room into the welcoming warmth of the outside world. Her whole self relaxed. Her body became a weapon. Smells grew sharp. Her vision cleared. Ordinary thoughts were big, vague clouds, too complicated and light to bother about, and through the clouds thrust a one vital thing, red and pulsing like a fresh bruise. Hunger. Hovering above Lubo Udang, she became invisible. The dying sunlight shone through her bones. The sense of the town floated up to her, a woman's jasmine-scented hair, the stink of the underarms of a tired hawker stallholder, the smell of someone's earwax. Anything else, anything not human, smelled pale in comparison, like water, but she could distinguish those scents if she concentrated hard enough, pulling them up from beneath the textured smells of humans. The aunts would smell of nothing, but she knew Ritzwell's scent. She sorted through the scents coming to her on the wind. His wasn't there. It might be too late already. How long had it been since they'd left? 
And once Ritzwal was meat, she wouldn't be able to find him. He wouldn't smell of himself anymore. He would just smell of food. She dove through the sky, following her nose. The sky was going grey and the sunlight was fading when Ritzwal left school. His dad would be busy getting dinner ready and his mom was out stationed so he told his dad he would cycle home. It would take half an hour but the air was soft and humid in the evening, cool enough to cycle. He hated Koku but he'd stayed for the extra few hours of marching in his scout's uniform, sweating under the blistering sun in a desperate attempt to fit in. It was probably worth it. If he didn't go, he would probably fit in even less, whereas at least now people knew who he was. Last week, one guy had even thwacked him on the back in a friendly way, yelling, Oi, what's up, Mohsin? Of course, he had then had to explain that he wasn't Mohsin, which had dampened the atmosphere of warmth and camaraderie slightly, but they had recognized the name when he said, I'm Ritzwal, or at least they had said, Oh, Ritzwan, is it? Maybe he wasn't friends the way the other guys were with each other. Maybe they didn't shout Oi Macha when they saw him or request that he relax la brother or imply heartily that he was gay in some sort of macho bonding ritual. But Rizwal had never been the kind of guy who attracted that response from his fellow guys and he was okay with that. He flew under the radar enough that he'd never been bullied. People let him do his own thing and that was all he wanted. He hadn't even really noticed not having friends. In KL, he'd hung out with his cousins who were used to him being the weird one and didn't hold it against him. And here in Lubu Udang, there was Ali. Had been. There had been Ali. His brain had successfully been avoiding the subject of her for all of ten minutes, but now it slid back down the old path. He kept forgetting and thinking of her as his friend, as the girl he'd fallen in love with. And if you thought of her as a human being, it was horrific what he had done to her. He had been a prized asshole, an unmitigated jerk. But before he could begin beating himself up for messing up the best thing that had ever happened to him, he'd remember that face she'd turned to him, and that made him not know how to feel again. That face had not been human. Kindness wasn't a thing that lived in the same world as that face. He'd been having nightmares ever since he saw it. The teeth, he'd think in a dream struggling in the grip of terror. The teeth. That was the scariest thing, the one mad, inexplicable thing in the whole mad, inexplicable situation that got to him. How come there wasn't anything wrong with her teeth? They had been perfectly human teeth, even, rounded at the edges, slightly yellow. He had to stop thinking about this. There was nothing he could do about it. Maybe she wasn't a vampire. Maybe she was deluded and he'd been hallucinating. Or maybe she was a vampire. But she wouldn't kill and eat him as long as he left her alone. She knew he wouldn't tell anyone. Who could he tell? Who believed in vampires anyway? Stupid, said Ritzwell aloud. The word wasn't vampire. Vampire wasn't scary enough to describe the thing he'd seen. It was like calling a Toyo a pixie. Not vampire, said Ritzwal, 
the word is Pontianak. The problem with Ritzwell was that he was a city boy. He'd grown up watching Japanese superhero TV shows and reading Archie comics. He hadn't really known his grandparents. They died when he was too little to hold conversations, much less be told scary stories. So he knew nothing. He didn't recognize the scent that sprang out of the evening then, though he registered it as something floral. It reminded him of Ali. It smelled of her. It was funny that it had never occurred to him that Ali might use perfume. He'd cycled on a little further when he heard the baby crying. A long wail, followed by a piteous sob, sob, sob that pierced the heart. It was startling how close it was, practically next to his ear. He braked to the side of the road and got off his bike. It was an odd place for a baby to be. He was standing on the edge of a car park. Across the road was a row of shop lots. Their signs still lit up, but the entrances were a line of close gray faces. The car park was an expanse of orange earth, dusty and crumbling and covered with weeds. It was fenced with rusting wire and shrubs ran along its periphery. There weren't many cars parked there, and the booth at the entrance was dark. The falling light turned the place airy. It was the kind of place where you could get done for halwat or be murdered, depending on who else was around. It was the kind of place where you could dump a baby if you needed to. He'd read about baby dumping in the newspapers, but you'd never thought you'd encounter such things yourself, and not in such places as this, surely. A nice small town? This wasn't KL. Who would dump a baby, said a voice in Ritzwell's head. Someone young, who wasn't supposed to be doing anything that would lead to a baby in the first place. Someone scared. He parked his bike on the pavement and walked into the car park. The floral scent grew stronger, though there weren't any flowers around that he could see. Only the bushes, strung out around the car park like a salad cot had started eating and left forgotten on his plate. The baby would be somewhere in there, probably, but he couldn't seem to work out where. The farther he walked in what he thought was the direction of the sound, the softer the baby's cries got. It was getting darker. The world was a pale purply blue and the moon showed clear in the sky. The car park was full of dark shapes, empty cars, rustling bushes, the cicadas were screaming their heads off and the baby was getting so soft that he could hardly hear it through the insects. But it was still crying, a long, drawn-out wail trailing off in a hopeless series of hiccups. He was terrified, but if he was scared, how would an abandoned baby feel? He found something behind the next bush. It wasn't a baby, though. It was an old lady, lying crumpled on the ground in a pathetic heap of bati and grey hair. Shit, said Ritzwell without thinking. He bent down and reached out to touch the lady's shoulder. Sorry, Machi, are you okay? The face the Machi turned to him was a normal Machi face. She was a Chinese lady with fluffy white hair and a mole on her left cheek. She looked like any other auntie you might see at the Pasabasa. Her teeth were perfectly ordinary. She was dead. Ritzwell stumbled back. He was shaking so hard his teeth rattled in his head. Teeth! Of course there was nothing wrong with the teeth. Teeth was vampires. Pontianat didn't pierce the neck with fangs. They didn't drink your blood. The machi held her hands out to Ritzwell as if she was going to hug him, pet his hair. Her hands were small and delicate. The fingernails were long, curving, and yellow, and blunt. It would take a long time for those fingernails to pierce his belly, for them to scoop out the intestines. It would hurt. 
The others came out of the bushes one by one. They were all little old ladies, little old Chinese ladies with those Chinese old lady clothes that looked like pajamas, all with long, blunt fingernails, all dead, all hungry. No, someone whimpered. Ritzwell thought of the baby before realizing it was his own voice. No, no, please, no. He turned and went running, crashing through the bushes. Somewhere in the distance, a baby was screaming breathlessly, but he knew the wail was issuing from six dry, old, dead mouths, and it grew softer and softer the closer they were. His chest was a great flame of pain. He banged his hand against the sidemare of a car and knew it would hurt later, if there was a later, but it felt like nothing now. He couldn't hear the baby anymore. A weight hit him in the back, and he went down, sobbing. The fingernails stuck into his side. Cold, musty breath gusted on his ear. He was going to die. He was sorry for everything. The fingernails cut into his skin, raising welts, and he opened his mouth to scream. The next minute, his mouth was full of earth and pebbles. Something had hit the creature on his back, a full-body blow, the impact driving Ritzwell's face into the ground. The Pontianot rolled off his back, ripping his t-shirt in the process. There must be fighting over him. There wasn't enough of him to go around, even if they were small. Old ladies didn't usually have much of an appetite, but Pontianot were probably different. He had a second while they were distracted, but no more. He struggled to his feet, willing his limbs to move. It came as something of a surprise to hear one of the Pontianot saying in an angry, machi croak, Aga, what are you doing here? You go home right now! So late already! He should run. He turned around, slowly. It was Ali glaring at the old lady who had been about to eat him. Who asked you to eat my schoolmate? She said shrilly. How am I supposed to go back to school now? So loose face! The Pontianot crowded around. Weirdly, they had all lost their eldritch horror. They looked like ordinary machi now. They were definitely talking like aunties in indignant high-pitched Hokkien. And what are you doing? snapped Ali. Me? What am I doing? What are you doing? said Ritzwal. Standing around like this? You want to be eaten, is it? said Ali. No, said Ritzwal. Go away, said Ali. Ritzwal had one last chance. He didn't understand everything that had just happened. In fact, it would be more accurate to say that he didn't understand anything that had just happened. But she'd saved his life, and not, it appeared, because she wanted to eat him herself. You wouldn't save someone's life if you were a monster, would you? You wouldn't save someone if you thought they were a monster. Ali, said Ritzwal, you need to talk. Not now, said Ali. Her voice was a door closing. I need to talk to my family. The last he saw of her in that dwindling light was her gallant back moving away from him and the cloud of aunts drawing in around her. Ali decided to try something new. In the morning, she waited outside the school gate until Ritzwell arrived. When his parents' car had driven off, she said, Let's go. They couldn't go to a Kopitiam or Mama restaurant in their school uniform, so they went to a nearby park. It was early, cool enough to walk. They didn't talk much on the way. There were a couple of people in the park, an uncle and an auntie, walking in circles with serious, intent looks on their faces. But the kids' playground was empty and they settled down on the swings there. 
Rizwa broke the silence first. What happened last night after I went? Oh, nothing much, said Ali. Was it? Ritzwal hesitated. That day. Ali stared at him mutely. Dealing with the aunts had actually been less difficult than she had expected. They had told her off for not staying home and doing her homework, but it was a half-hearted telling off. The aunts knew they had forfeited the moral high ground by trying to eat her classmate. Ali had listened without saying a word to their unconvinced lectures as they flew home. At the door, she had turned and said to the aunts, We are not dogs in the forest. She had gone straight to bed without speaking to anybody. She felt guilty about it in the morning. She had said too much. The aunts had already known that they had overstepped the line, broken the rules by which they operated. The aunts seemed to feel equally ashamed. Tattooing around her at breakfast, she had kissed Ama with special tenderness before leaving for school, particularly as she was already planning to ponting and knew how shocked the aunts would be at that. Non-attendance at school would probably seem a worse crime to them than eating humans. She didn't know how to explain any of this to Ritzwal. It all seemed too complicated. Did you have to fight or, I don't know, something? said Ritzwal. Ali could tell he was already feeling foolish about having asked. I mean, never mind. He paused. Do you really eat people? Not really people, said Ali. Only their, you know, their usus all that, their entrails. She tapped her belly. You don't like all the other part. Ritzwal screwed up his mouth. But he only said, thanks for not eating me and not letting those others eat me. Ali shrugged. Usually they won't eat you anyway. We don't eat people we know. They all were just angry on me. Ritzwal looked down at his feet. He was scratching shapes in the sand with the toe of one shoe. You guys can't eat anything else, he said. Like animal intestines? No. Do you eat good people as well, or only bad people, or... We don't eat women, said Ali, and we don't eat people we know. That's all. I don't pick and choose, depending if I like your face or I don't like your face so much. Not women, said Rizwal. I didn't realize vampires did affirmative action. It's already suffering enough to be a woman, Ali recited. Don't eat people to eat you some more. This was Archer's line, but the aunts were unanimous on this. Hadn't Ama told Ali how she had cried whenever she gave birth to a daughter because she knew what sorrow lay in her future? After all, there's enough men around, added Ali. Ritzwal grinned, but he looked a little sick. Doesn't it bother you? he said. At all? Ali stared into the distance. It was hard to explain. She had felt differently about these things when she was living. I know what you were trying to say, she said. But it's like animals. You feel it's like eating animals? No, said Ali. It's like I'm the animal now. After I die, I kind of became an animal. When I'm hungry, when I eat, there's no feeling. Afterwards, maybe some feeling. I feel a bit bad. But that's why we don't simply just eat people. We process them first. My aunts like to make pepper soup, you know, you know, two sortong, pig stomach soup, like that, but not with pig stomach. 
Oh, said Ritzwell faintly. Wait, all those old ladies last night, they're your aunties? One is my grandma and one is my great-grandma, said Ali. The others are my aunties. But don't you think it's a bit weird if there's so many vampires in a small town like this and they don't know each other? Ritzwell opened his mouth. Then he closed it, his throat working. That's definitely weird, he said in a strangled voice. Anyway, don't worry about my aunties. They won't eat you, said Ali. I told them already, and I won't eat you. Never, never. I know, said Ritzwell. Ali looked at the ground. She felt her eyes start to prickle, so she said it quickly. Are you going to nail me? She was startled and not a little offended when Ritzwell started chortling. What's so funny? Ali demanded. Um, said Ritzwell. It's an American thing. Maybe I'll tell you someday. This is supposed to be serious, said Ali. Sorry, sorry, Ritzwell wiped his eyes. I'm not going to nail you. No. Saying it seemed to sober him up. I'm sorry I tried it, he said. Thank you, said Ali. Now the next thing. You don't have to be friends with me anymore. I won't be offended. I'll understand. She had to say it. Then it would be done, finished, and they both could go back to their respective lives with all of this behind them. It was kind of worth it, Ali kept her eyes on the ground. She would be too shy to say it if she looked at Rizwal. Ever since I became like this, I didn't really have friends. It was a bit lonely, so it was nice having you. I don't want to be friends with you, said Rizwal. Ali had expected this answer, but she was still taken aback by how much it hurt to hear it. She had been sad about him enough, she told herself sternly. All the aunts had said that. Don't waste so many tears on one man, they had scolded, as if it would have been alright to spread the tears over several men, but not to allocate so many to only one person. Ali, having been brought up to hate waste, agreed with them. She locked her hands together and blinked furiously. Her chest ached. Okay, she said. Ritzwell touched her hand. Ali clenched it into a fist so he couldn't take it, but then he tried to pry her fingers apart one by one. Of course it didn't work. Ali started giggling. Oh, I give up, said Ritzwell, exasperated. I'm a moron to try to fight a Pontiana. But look, I don't want to be your friend doesn't mean I don't want to hang out with you. There can be another meaning. What another meaning? said Ali. She looked up when he didn't answer. Ritzwell was looking at her with a kind of glow in his eyes. It was the way her mother and father used to look at her, back when she was alive, before all the bad things had happened, as if she was something special, something precious. Ali's ex-boyfriend had never looked at her like that. Redswell had always had this look, Ali realised. He had always looked at her as if she was the sunrise after a long, dark night. Oh, said Ali. You don't have to not want to be my friend back said Ritzwell. Ali hesitated, but there was a perfect way to say yes and still sound cool. I don't mind, she said. Ritzwell turned his face away, but he was too slow. Ali already knew he was beaming. She reached out and took his hand, encountering less trouble than he had done. Okay, said Ritzwell. 
That works. They smiled stupidly for a while, shedding radiance on the slide and sandbox, showering incidental romance on the speed-walking uncle and auntie. Only one thing, said Adi. Oh, there's something else on top of the vampire machi and the human pig stomach soup, said Ritzwal. What more is there? I have to fight a werewolf first before I can date you, is it? Nola, there's no such thing as werewolf, said Ali. It's a small thing on me, but vampire is okay. The other word, please don't use. Is that okay? Why? said Ritzwal. It's not such a nice word, said Ali. Okay, said Ritzwal. Okay. Then he said, Can I use it one last time? Ali nodded. She knew what was coming. Will you tell me how you became a Puntianak? Sitting there with him in the park, Ali told him. She had not told anyone else the story before. He didn't let go of her hand. Her grandmother watched her being born. Her grandmother watched her die. Who died of childbirth in the 21st century? It didn't happen. Not if you were middle class in Malaysia. Not if you'd followed the rules and paid attention at school and listened to your parents. Not if you'd been a good girl. By the time her parents had suspected, it hadn't been too late. That was the thing. The worst thing. Worse than being dumped by the boy who had given her the baby, though that had felt terrible when it had happened. But it was nowhere near as bad as her parents' carefully expressionless faces as they had gone from day to day pretending nothing was happening. The day she fainted because she'd thrown up all her breakfast and had hidden in her room and refused to eat, they hadn't said anything. When she choked on her food because things tasted different now she was pregnant, they didn't say anything. She stopped going to school. Her parents stopped talking to her. Her world contracted. It was like being invisible. It was as if she had died and no one had noticed. Months of it. Months of feeling sad and ashamed. But now that it had become serious enough that even her parents could not ignore it, now that she was in the hospital and somebody was looking after her, Ali did not feel free or relieved. She felt angry. She resented her parents wildly for breaking their promise that they would protect her, for failing to love her no matter what. And still, she was sorry that the secret had to come out. The baby had to come out and they would lose face. She wished she could be dying in some less embarrassing way. She could have drowned in the monsoon rain. She could have been run over by a car. She felt bad for them, but she wished they would stop hanging over her bed and crying. I'm sorry, girl. Mommy, so sorry, girl. Sorry, no cure, Ali wanted to say. After a while, it stopped. Somebody took her parents away. Ali regretted her silent fury. She missed them. Somebody was doing something pointless down there. She was bleeding. When she died, someone was holding her hand, not a mother or a father with their enormous burden of expectation, someone calmer, their hands softer, wrinklier skinned, 
at the very last moment, Ali opened her eyes and saw her grandmother waiting for her. After death, the scent of frangipani, the stench of decay, revenge, a red flame at the heart, her hair whipped against her face, smelling of the mulch in a graveyard, her nails were long and yellow, her body was free, she got up on the bed and nothing hurt. She had lost all sense of the disgusting, she had bled so much that she would never flinch from blood again. She was made for tearing out kidneys, feasting on livers, pulling out strings of intestines. It would never again be her own blood that was spilt, her insides that were pulled inside out. She flew down the corridors of the hospital and there was no pain, or everything was pain, but it spun outwards, knocking people over, ripping heads off. Blood sprayed on the walls. People were screaming. Someone grabbed the wrists of the hurricane. Someone slapped the face of the typhoon. Enough! Stop now! The voice was as familiar to her as her mother's. She would have killed anyone else, but the voice brought her down. Angry already, huh? said the voice. Just because you're angry doesn't mean everybody else must suffer, scolded another voice. Blood was rolling down from her eyes. She blinked, but her eyes stung. The world was a smear. She couldn't see a thing. Quieting down already. Can listen now. Can see now. Close your eyes, Ali. Close your eyes, girl. Someone brushed a damp cloth over her eyelids. When she opened her eyes, she saw who it was. No need to cry, said Ama. No need for all this. Come, we are going somewhere else. Then you can lie down. Rest first. You'll feel nicer after that. Where are we going? said Ali. Her voice came out in a hoarse whisper, scraping her throat. It was sore from the screaming. Where's mummy and daddy? Mummy and daddy have to look after your brothers and sister, said an old lady in a baju kebaya. Ali had never seen her before, but she leaned her head trustingly against the old lady's chest when the old lady picked her up. She felt as tired as if she had just been born. What about the baby? she whispered. The baby's gone, said Archor. It was the first time they met. Don't worry, we'll look after you now. G.E., said Ali blarily as her eyes began to pick out familiar faces. Joachim? Auntie girl? I don't have children, said G.E. My children are all grown up, said Joachim. How to let you go alone, said Auntie girl. Now you don't need to worry, we'll be with you. There was something to tell them. Mama, said Ali. Yes, girl? Shame washed over her. It had been bad enough with her parents. How could you tell your grandmother something like this? The baby, she said. The father. I didn't purposely. At the start, I wasn't thinking about all that. I just liked him. We were dating and it just happened. When I found out I was pregnant, I didn't know what to do. I was scared to tell anybody. And then, mommy and daddy... She didn't know what to say about that worst betrayal. She still felt sorry. She had not had the chance to apologize, to explain. Can you tell them? She said. Tell them it was an accident. I didn't purposely. I just didn't think. I didn't think this would happen. Tell them I'm sorry. They were walking down the hospital corridor. Archer cradled Ali to her chest, 
stepping over the bodies. Ama already said there's no need to cry, said Ama. It's not your fault. Your mommy and daddy should have looked after you. Ama tried to teach your mommy to bring up her children right, but there's no need to be so strict. You are her daughter, whether you are good or naughty. Ama should have explained. We all should be saying sorry, said Saipo. She didn't mean just the aunts. You are only a child. Never mind, it's over already, said Archo. Don't worry about it anymore. When they had reached the stairwell at the end of the corridor, Ali was already half asleep. When they smashed through the glass and jumped out of the window, seven floors up, she was sleeping. She didn't feel the night wind on her skin or see the starlight on the aunt's faces. When she woke up, she was a new person. She was dead, but she wasn't alone. There was nothing to be scared of in this new life. With six aunts behind you, you can be anything. And welcome back. You thought you had some weird ants in your family, huh? Hey, before we get the feedback, a quick reminder. Our Flash Fiction Contest is starting up next week, July 1st. Original stories, 500 words, up to two entries per contestant. Hit up our forum for all the rules and make it so. Alright, feedback this week is for Ray Carson and CeCe Finley's The Great Zeppelin Heist of Oz. Read by Nick Podell, courtesy of Brilliance Audio. The story of how the fast-talking, self-proclaimed, great and powerful Oz came to Oz and got a Zeppelin handed to him, or taken away, by the witches. Generally, people enjoyed this one in no small part due to the reading. Windup said, yeah, this was fun. I love the who, zoom, and who angle in almost any story, and this one definitely had it. I love the balderdash, but I think my favorite character was the hoodlum munchkin. I always wondered what happened to the ones who couldn't make the cut for the Lollipop Guild or the Lullaby League. Benjamin J.B. said, I'm for the chorus here. Excellent, excellent narration. The story itself was also fine and light-hearted. I think the stakes here were so low, some ransomed flying monkeys, stolen Zeppelin technology, that the story remained light-hearted, even if the characters might have been trying to screw each other over. And Oz's balderdashy speaking carried this over into the realm of pure silliness, helped along by the rotating POV for each section. There was also a bit of interesting discussion about whether or not it works when you warp a sweet and charming story like The Wizard of Oz for an adult audience, which I thought was fascinating. And if you want to see really, really warped, check out Robin Wasserman's One Flew Over the Rainbow, also in the Oz Reimagined anthology, which is a pretty twisted mashup of Oz and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. A lot of people asked on our forum for more Nick Podell. Here's the thing, folks. We were able to run Nick's amazing reading thanks to Brilliance Audio being willing to help us out, but Nick's a professional voice actor. He does this for a living, and right now, unfortunately, we can't afford to pay our readers. Not even a token amount. So, I'll just go ahead and ask. If you'd like to help us out by donating, we would really, really appreciate it. Right now, your money pays our authors, covers server costs, keeps us going... But wouldn't it be great if we had enough to pay narrators too? Now, if you can't donate, no worries, but please tell your friends about us. Facebook, Twitter, it makes me so happy to see people on Twitter randomly telling me you love a story. So thanks for that. Anyway, you can spread the word any way you can. Maybe have the family over for dinner while you're grilling up some meat with garlic, chili sauce, and onions. 
hopefully not human meat. Well, thanks. That was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, Associate Editor Ann Leckie, Sound Producer Peter Wood, and your editors, Anna Schwind and myself, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back in one week, one, with a Western set in China by Levi Terrar for our 4th of July episode. I guess that makes it an Eastern, technically. So you bring the fireworks, we'll provide the dragons, we'll see you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from George Burns, who said, Happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.